Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and this is the analysis.news. I'll shortly be joined by Matt Stoller to speak about monopoly power and its impact on the political sphere. Please don't forget to go to our website, theanalysis.news, to donate and to subscribe to our newsletter. I'll be back in a second. I'm joined now by Matt Stoller. He's the research director at the American Economic Liberties Project and the author of the book Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. He's also the author of the Substack, Big. Matt, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, So I wanted to start off with a bigger picture question. And why is it so important to focus on monopoly power? Why does concentration of economic power in the hands of the few actually lead to the economy not functioning properly and also a concentration of political power? Yeah, so I think uh, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but I think the important one to understand is that what we face right now in our society is a lot of conservatives and liberals who disagree about you know, the right way to run a society. But what I think everybody is feeling the downstream effects from tremendous corporate consolidation. So over the last 20 years, 75% of industries have gotten more concentrated, largely through mergers. But this is in everything from like search engines, which we know with Google, right? There's Google and that's it. But it's also small markets, you know, and airlines and you know, pharmaceuticals and so on and so forth. It's also small markets like mail sorting software or ultimate fighting championships, or, you know, like you can, you can, you could pick, you could probably point at something and be like, that thing is, you know, probably monopoly, some, some, you know, insulation material or something. And the problem with consolidation writ large, the problem with this monopolization across the economy is that in every market where you have one or two firms in control of that market, you got one or two entities setting the terms, the prices, the wages for that market. Effectively, you have a private government and an authoritarian government in mail sorting software, right? And that may not be a big deal, right? To have like, you know, mail sorting software, the prices in terms, if you're an engineer or you're, you know, you use the mail or you know, it's not that big a deal, right? And maybe it's not that big a deal if the flight from your city to another city is, you know, you have to go through a, a third, uh, you know, a third city to get there. I and mean, it could be a big deal if it's canceled, you know, if, it, if that's cut entirely. But when you add all of this up, when you add up the monopolization in every market that people are now dealing with, you start to see that maybe we're not living in a democratic society. Maybe, yeah, sure, we're voting and sure there's political liberty to sort of say what you want, but all of the institutions, the private institutions that mediate how we live our lives are increasingly controlled by one or two entities and are increasingly authoritarian. So that's the political threat. And then the the consequences of that are all the things that liberals and conservatives don't like, that there's income inequality, asset inequality, regional inequality as capital pools into a few cities and is drawn out of kind of everywhere else. Um, Censorship, right, as you have a small number of entities controlling the flow of information. Um, uh, Addiction, uh, you know, corruption, like all, 
sort of most of the things that people don't like about the way society is being run now, like this feeling that there are these distant masters that control stuff, that's a function of monopolization, which is a function of public policy choices that we've made over the last 20 to 40 years to facilitate that kind of consolidation. And what would an alternative actually be? I mean, could we potentially have like publicly run uh, companies that could then compete with private companies? Or is that just something that's unattainable? Yeah, yeah, of course. See, there's lots of ways of structuring uh, structuring markets, right? Markets. So there's this sort of sense on the left that, well, we're for markets or against markets. But you can have, you know, that's that's not a coherent way to think about the problem, right? No one has a problem with a farmer's market, right? You go to a farmer's market, it's fine. People have problems with derivatives markets. Right, where you're exchanging like very fancy securities. You know, there is a political difference between a slave market and a farmer's market. Even though they both use the word market, they're very different institutions. And that's because markets are public institutions that we set up through political, the rules that we write through politics. So to answer your question, the monopolization that we have in our economy is unusual today. Like we didn't have this in the 19, uh, you know, in the 1970s, and we didn't have it in the 1770s. And, you know, there's hundreds of years of public utility regulation and anti-monopoly rules that we kind of threw out the window in the early 80s and allowed this kind of consolidation to emerge. And there are lots of ways as we're sort of, what's exciting is that for the last five years or so, there's been a lot of pushback and we're starting to change public policy to actually address consolidation. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You can do it by um, uh, by just fa facilitating more competition. Like it doesn't necessarily matter if the owner of the competitive firm is a is public, is like a the government or not. Um, there are well-run government uh, firms. There are badly run government firms and the same thing with the private sector or not. It's just a question of, is there consolidated power? So you can allow for, for new entry, right? And there are, are ways to make sure that that happens. Um, there, you can... You know, if, if 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 an institution is kind of like if it's if it's infrastructure, right, like if it's a core part of of some sort of social input, like if it's electricity or, or a water system or maybe a search engine or a social network or an operating system, you can regulate it and put in certain pricing rules about what you can charge, who you can discriminate against. These rules have been in everything from railroads to telegraph systems to stagecoaches going back hundreds of years. So we've done this before. The way, you know, the, the way to like kind of govern our society is through these rules. And we forgot about them for 30, 40 years. And the massive monopolization, um, the distant masters controlling us is the result. And as we sort of rediscover this language, like, yeah, we're going to put controls on, you know, essentially like distant masters and those controls are going to be anti-monopoly rules, regulatory choices, and so on and so forth. Well, what actually happened in the past few decades, because in the 30s, 40s, 50s, we had very effective antitrust laws and they were widely enforced. And then I guess in the 70s, with Chicago school economics being so popular, there was this push for, de like for, for deregulating markets and for not enforcing antitrust law. And Maybe you can just explain what happened in the 70s. Like, why why was that such a bad decade for regulation? Yeah. So so it, so if you've ever thought, right, if any of your audience members have ever thought, oh, um, that that's 
that's economics or that's finance. That's too difficult. I don't, I, I don't know anything about that. I, I have strong views about this thing over here, but that stuff is, it, I don't know. I don't know what that, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to weigh in on that. Um, that's sentiment, right? The idea that a citizen shouldn't be able to weigh in on our, our commerce, right? How we trade with one another. Um, that is what happened. This, this sense that like a very fundamental aspect of the human experience, which is how we relate to one another through commerce, what we buy and sell from each other, ideas we trade with each other, how we, you know, how we grow food uh, and, and sell it to one another and process it. These are very political questions that have embedded power systems in them. And in the 1970s, collectively, we as a society decided that these were not political that these were technical questions best left to experts, AKA economists, the, the scientists of the economy, right? Economists. And that was a tremendous change in political power. Uh, and this was not a right-wing thing, like the Chicago school were conservatives, but the, the left-wing at the time, there were a lot of socialists who agreed. They thought, well, of course we need the scientists to be running things and the scientists should run things and then we should make things equal. The scientists should run things, but to make them equal. But of course we shouldn't, you know, we, the, the rabble shouldn't have any role in the economy. Right. And so those two movements, it was sort of the left saying, you know, let the scientists run things and the right saying, let the business people run things for they're both essentially elitist views crushed this anti-monopoly populist sentiment that normal people kind of know what's best for them. And we started to like the, the transition in the seventies was from the citizen to the consumer, right? So we stopped thinking our, of ourselves as citizens who make things, who trade with one another, um, who are participants in communities. And we started to think about ourselves as consumers and said the whole point of this corporate stuff that's going on is to serve consumers better with lower prices. And now that's all we're going to think about. Not power, not rivalry, not citizens, not society, but are we getting low prices in the short term, low consumer prices in the short term? And guess what that delivers? It delivers Walmart, right? Whose slogan is everyday low prices. And the philosophy that I talked about Right. Where they just said all of these areas of law, we're not going to enforce them to prevent concentrations of power. This kind of like Madisonian checks and balances that we did with the government, the way we did that in the private sectors through competition. We're no longer going to do it that way. Instead, we're going to go to the scientists and we're going to say, make it efficient, not just but efficient through price theory. And that's, you know, for consumers. But that's and also the consumer welfare standard, right? Like, yeah, you is... roll it forward 40 years and that's what you got. You got Google, which is free. You got Amazon, which is low, low prices. You got Facebook, which is free, right? And the, for the economists, they look at this and they see a beautiful world where everything is cheap and made in China and all of these web institutions are, are most powerful ones in the world are free. And this to them is nirvana. Yeah. And right now, I mean, we're living in this sort of existential crisis where I mean, climate change is 
a huge deal and a lot of companies are hiding behind ESG policies to pretend like they're actually doing something for the climate. So I was wondering how antitrust law can actually be useful there. Like if we're breaking up monopolies, how can we at the same time make these companies, you know, more receptive to adhering to the demands of uh, a climate change movement? Well, so, so I, I'm not a specialist in energy, but I think one of the one of the things that antitrust and anti-monopoly rules can do is they can prevent the status. The goal is basically to prevent the status quo from from restraining new entrants into markets. Basically, like if you have a new way of doing things, the person who runs the old way of doing things is going to try to stop them. And they're going to try to stop them through lots of different techniques. They might try to buy them out. They might try to go to the person's potential customers and say, you're also a customer of me and I'll screw you over. They might you know, try to sue them in, in using sham lawsuits. There's lots of techniques and tactics. Um, but the basic idea is like the king doesn't want a rival. And that's, I think, like we have a society where oil and gas is a, is the dominant way that we run our energy systems. And, you know, the utilities, the, the utilities are, and coal as well, the utilities are very comfortable with that. And if you try to bring in new ways of generating energy, then that can be like pretty threatening to the entrenched incumbents. And so part of what we're trying to do is to attack the ability of those entrenched incumbents to prevent new entrants into the market and to prevent um, new ways of doing things that are more efficient, that emit less carbon or no carbon. Um, and that's like, that's that's kind of part of it. I don't think that you can rely on antitrust or anti-monopoly rules to address all of it. Like you have to, um, you also just have to have the government say, we're gonna get rid of carbon emissions if that's what you wanna do. Um, but certainly like the way that we have set up our political economy, you know, the incumbents are going to be really resistant to having new ways of doing things. Just like Google is going to be really resistant to new ways of searching for things that they don't control. You know, uh, uh, the coal industry or whoever is going to be really resistant to ways of generating energy that are not the things that they sell. Right. Yeah, and I guess another issue is how do you actually regulate certain industries when these regula regulatory bodies are captured by the industries they're trying to regulate? And that's well, I think, I think this is this is a good point because you know the idea of capture is actually a Chicago school idea, right? This is George Stigler came up with the idea to discredit the idea of regulation. He said regulators work for the industries that right that they regulate, therefore don't regulate because. It's just a way of facilitating more barriers to entry. And he actually originally used electric utilities and showed that in regulated systems, the prices are higher than in, in systems that were not as regulated. Now, it was, it, as it turns out, it was not true. It was wrong um, and really was an attack on the idea of regulation itself. Um, and so I don't I think the notion of capture is like a it's not it's not I don't think it were I don't think it makes sense. But I do think what happened is that, you know, the left, right, and and sort of the people who who believe in the in the public interest, lost their moral imagination, right? And they didn't for you know the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 
if you were, you know, you were like, I want to help the public interest. I care about justice. You would do things like civil rights law or environmental law or, or, or um, you know, sort of various other sort of social questions. And the idea that you might want to go into regulating electric utilities as like a focal point of justice, that would be like crazy, right? It would just like, why would you want to do that? And the same thing is true for like telecom. Like if you're, if you meet someone and, and they say, yeah, I'm a telecommunications lawyer, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, this person really cares about social justice, right? But in fact, all the money and power in the world is in corporate America, right? And one of the things that's exciting is to see people are starting to learn the language of business, the language of commerce, the language of regulation, the language of business law, and see that it's this fundamental way of doing democracy. And that's what I think is exciting. So it's like the regulators in all of these areas, they don't, they're, they're outgunned, um, but also, you know, they haven't seen kind of young people coming in and learning this area and wanting to do that stuff for, for a long time. And I think that's changing. I think you're, what you're finding is like, there's more interest in the moral choices that we're making in all of these regulatory bodies. Right. And there's also a lot of, I guess, enthusiasm right now to actually do something given the landscape, like especially after Donald Trump and um, just like big tech being able to pry on people's uh, data on Google or Facebook and, and using their data, like basically treating people as products, using their data, using it for marketing and for surveillance capitalism. And I think we're living in a context right now where in the US we actually have trust in certain regulators. So perhaps there's not complete regulatory capture and we have trust in regulators such as Lena Khan at the FTC or Jonathan Cantor as the attorney at the antitrust division. So maybe you could talk about the sort of division of labor between what Lena Khan is trying to actually do and what Jonathan Cantor is trying to do with his cases. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a basic narrative here that we have to overcome, which is a narrative of nihilism that our governing systems are fundamentally broke, broken, which is a common thing and we can't regulate, we can't do anything. Um, and, you know, that is not the way that when we had a more egalitarian society, that's not the way that we thought about the world. We thought about, we live in a democracy and we have the honor of living in a democracy and we have the honor of making these systems deliver for the public. I mean, if they're not delivering for the public, then it is our responsibility to make them deliver for the public through our governing institutions, not through activism or holding signs, but through like learning the law and learning like the mechanisms to actually govern and, you know, working through institutions to do that. That's when stuff worked. That's what we did. And it was messy and there were lots of problems, but like that's welcome to self-government, welcome to being a human being. Um, so what we have with the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division um, is a good example of how you actually get in there and start to like turn things around. So there are two, basically there are two agencies in government that handle antitrust, right? There are every, there's lots of agencies in government at a state, local level and federal level that handle regulation and deal with markets. Antitrust law is a specific sort of tip of the spear for certain corporations. Like a, it's kind of like economy wide. They don't set prices. They don't regulate airlines and what, but they, they bring antitrust law, make sure that, that markets are competitive in general. And there's two agencies that deal with that. One of them is the federal trade commission. The other is the antitrust division, which is a part of the department of justice. And we have two really good populist sort of enforcers, one of which is 
Lena Khan, who's the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, and the other one is Jonathan Cantor, who's the head of the antitrust division. And both of them are starting to challenge uh, mer more mergers. They're starting to bring conduct cases against sort of standard like tactics that would have been anti-competitive in the 70s. But today people are like shrugging and saying whatever. And now they're trying to bring that kind of law back. Um, they are uh, trying to address problems like private equity, which is this kind of like financial force. All the you know money in the world are controlled by these big funds. And then they buy companies and lay people off and merge them together into monopolies. And it's like this whole sort of scam at the center of the economy. And like antitrust law can kind of touch that. And so uh, Cantor and Khan are both trying to get at it. And they're bringing cases and they're being heard by the courts and they're making changes in the policy decision, really in the guts of the government, the kind of places that you don't, you know, you or I wouldn't necessarily notice. I mean, well, I notice it, but that's because it's what I do. Um, but the like, you know, the, the, Everybody thinks there's like kind of conspiracies about how things work and they're it's kind of true. Um, they're like more open and boring than people assume, but they're kind of like working the levers on behalf of the public. And it's kind of like a slow turnaround. But now there are a bunch of antitrust suits against Google. There are antitrust suits against like pesticide makers against like, you know, people who are um, firms that like make locks for doors. Um, uh, there are investigations of there's investigations of, of Amazon, of Apple's App Store, of like lots of sort of different areas. And, you know, look, these things are going to take a while. Right. Because the courts, you know, you don't turn around a, um, you know, a, a giant ship instantly, but they're starting to do the turnaround. And it's it's we're starting to see impacts. Right. And do you think that with the midterms, with any of those political changes in the makeup of the of the makeup of Congress, if we'll actually see more antitrust law um, being implemented or will, will Congress actually act and pass any laws in this? Regard? I don't, I don't know. I think the answer is yes. I just don't know when. So it, it could be, um, it could be this week. It could be in a year. It, it, I think in five years we will have different antitrust laws. I just don't know when, I mean, the, the house Republican leadership is very hostile to new antitrust legislation, most of it. Um, so, you know, the, the, in the next two years, it's, it's look, looks kind of not that promising, but their own caucus. So Republican voters and then Republican members of Congress, some of them want antitrust legislation. So you have this like weird dynamic. And then the Senate is controlled by Democrats and the Democrats are pretty good on, on, on certain, certain antitrust and like strengthening antitrust. Although Chuck Schumer, doesn't want to, you know, he hates antitrust, so he won't bring them to a vote. So it's basically like you have, and then there's lots of, there's states which are hearing antitrust bills. We're in the early stages. Um, and I think like this, you know, I think we're going to have wholesale reorganization of antitrust law. Um, but it just, it's, you know, it takes time, right? I mean, this is a big country and you have to generate some level of consensus that the way we've been running business isn't, you know, is, is causing significant problems and we should run, we should run our business systems in a different way. And I think we've done a pretty good job of convincing people that the way that we run our business systems is a problem, that there's been a lot of too much consolidation. And now we're in this process of sort of explaining and debating actually how to deal with that. And we haven't, we haven't quite settled on some sort of consensus on what to do, but I think we're getting there. Okay.
Can you also talk about the effect of monopolies on inflation? Because I think after the CARES Act, we saw you know this massive upward transfer of wealth, and there are different narratives as to what actually led to inflation. So some people would say that people were just flush with money and they had all this extra money to spend that drove inflation, and so you know the fault is on government spending as opposed to potentially looking at how firms collude and drive prices up or even price fix. Yeah, so so this is a good question. Um, the CARES Act, just for people that don't know, was the bill that Congress passed right when the pandemic hit to to try to deal with the fact that we were experiencing an economic collapse. So this was like the checks that people got, you know, increased unemployment, loans to small business, and then a bailout for Wall Street. Those were ba- and some aid to hospitals. That was basically the package. Um, so one of the things that a consolidated economy does is it reduces the amount of spare capacity that we have. So like companies, when they, you know, when you have five companies in a market and each of them has a bunch of factories, you have a certain amount of capacity in the market. If they consolidate into say two companies, those companies, you know, what they want to do is like lower output and raise prices. That's generally what, uh, what's what monopolies often do. And so they'll take factories and they'll shut them down or they'll take factories and they'll offshore them to China. That's been the other sort of strategy. Now, you can see this with every like railroads, for example. We only have, I think, seven class one railroads. We used to have dozens of class one railroads. They have been shutting down routes. They've been laying off workers for a long time. Um, You know, we saw this with the strike, but this has been a problem or this has been a dynamic where the railroads are like, we want to be more profitable. So we're going to take capacity offline. Um, it's true for the, sh- for the shipping industry It's true for like a lot of different industries, semiconductors. Now, what happens when you take, when you get rid of slack, right? Well, you're not ready for a shock to the system. Like all of a sudden, if you don't, if you have an economy full of bottlenecks, which is what an, a monopoly is basically a bottleneck, then when you have a shock to the system, you're going to have like, the shock is going to be accelerated by the the bottlenecks that people have because a monopolist, when they see, oh my gosh, everyone needs what I have all of a sudden, I'm going to raise my prices a lot, right? That's what I get to do. Versus if there's a competitive market where you have a number of, of firms that are selling something, they might, they'll raise their prices because there's a lot of demand, but you know, not as much. And then they'll also invest in more capacity so that they can meet the demand. And that's what you didn't really see with when like the when the the covid hit all of a sudden you know there was all this pricing power that consolidated firms had and so they exploited it and you also had a lot less slack in the economy you know where so you couldn't like just produce more because those factories had been shuttered um and then you you know the cares act because it had a bailout for wall street it did facilitate a lot more mergers and so there was more consolidation as a result of um of the policy of the cares act to address covid um, and, and so, yeah, so there was th- that, that, like, I think what it did is it, is it didn't just like it, it, I think accelerated inflation. I mean, I think inflation happened because of, of COVID you shut the economy down, you turn it back on, you're just going to have problems. Like when we demobilized from world war one or from world war two, you had significant inflation and that's just because everything was out of whack and transitioning back to a, a peacetime economy was, you know you're going to have like pricing signals are going to go kaflui. And that's a little bit what happened with COVID. But the reason it got much worse than it had to be is because we had a consolidated economy. Um, so I know that I think that answers the question. Yeah, it does. 
And also looking at the Fed, I mean, are you supportive of such large increases in interest rates? Or like, do you think that they've been vastly ineffective? Well, I'm so a lot of like I'm I'm kind of unusual in for a progressive in that I, I do think that the Fed should be tightening monetary conditions like there's this view for, that goes back. Uh, you can see it like we've had zero. So the the Federal Reserve, like I look at it, there's something called the Kantian effect, right? The Kantian effect is comes from this 18th century economist who basically said that, like, the closer you are, the, the, the king has controls monetary policy. Essentially, the king controls the gold in an economy. Um, if there's a gold mine that's discovered, the people that are closer to the gold mine or that are more friends with the king are going to get access to the gold first, right? And they're going to be able to use that money to buy up assets before that gold gets to everyone else. And then eventually it gets to everyone else. There'll be inflation and whatnot. But essentially it was an argument about monetary policy. And it was saying the closer you are to the institutional creators of money, the more power you have. And that can be changed. You can build institutions that move money to everyone equally. But the idea is money is not neutral, right? And we had that. Like we had a lot of facilities to allow more small business lending and lending to ordinary people. And that those are kind of atrophied. So today, the Federal Reserve, which would be, I guess, the gold mine, right, in the center of the economy, when it prints money, the people that get it first are on Wall Street. And so, you know, a lot of like liberals or lefties think, well, the, the Fed should kind of keep interest rates low because this will help ordinary people. But in fact, when the Fed keeps interest rates low, they're not keeping interest rates low for you or me. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not like my credit card interest rates have gone down since the Fed like lowered rates in 2010. Um, Although that's I'm just in Germany, like, so it's a totally different regulatory space. But. Right, but I mean, it, so, okay, so, um, uh, well, I can just say that they haven't, right? I mean, the yeah. interest, credit card interest rates, you know, interest rates on Wall Street are zero, were zero percent. And the credit card interest rates were 20%. Um, they were like credit cards were a result of market power, not um, not like the, the the Fed lowering or raising. The point is, is that Wall Street gets a certain number of int gets gets interest rates. Wall Street has an interest rate and then ordinary people have an interest rate. And I think we shouldn't confuse the two of them. Now, the problem with low interest rates for Wall Street, when the Fed keeps interest rates low, is that Wall Street takes that money and then uses it to engage in mergers and shut down factories and stuff like that. Like it doesn't reach the real economy. It doesn't reach ordinary people. And what's happened since the Fed has started raising interest rates is you've seen like a lot of the scams that Wall Street have been pursuing have fallen apart. Like crypto is a good example. Like crypto is just a bunch of crime and bullshit. And since the Fed started to tighten financial conditions, it's all it's all fallen apart. And that's a good thing. Right. Private equity firms are having trouble raising money. There's all sorts of Ponzi schemes in the economy that are falling apart. And so I actually think it's a good thing that the Fed is tightening financial conditions because I think there was there was too much easy money and it wasn't flowing to normal people to borrow things and like build factories or or well, not the normal people build factories, but like it wasn't flowing to normal people to take out loans for what they wanted to do. It was flowing to powerful people that were using it for stock buybacks and and um, and mergers and acquisitions and executive compensation and stuff like that. And that's all just a bunch of, um, that's like not useful investment. Right. 
There's also another thing that the Fed has been doing, and I don't quite understand it, but it, I guess it's called normalization. So when you sort of shrink your balance sheet and roll off the assets that you own, and how does that affect the housing market? Like, does that in any way address some of the barriers that people have in trying to buy a house in the U.S.? Or what is right. like, so the intention of that? The Fed was basically directly lending money to people to buy houses is one way to put it. You know, I mean, there's complicated ways of talking about it, but they were they were saying we're going to we're going to give money to the banks that are lending money to people to buy houses. And now they and they, they gave trillions of dollars to do that. So what happened? People bought a lot of houses and housing prices went, you know, skyrocketed. They went up by like 40 percent in in during the pandemic, which is crazy. Like it's just way too much and makes it unaffordable to buy a house. And what the Fed has done since then is they've started saying, okay, we're not gonna lend money to people to buy houses. In fact, we're gonna start to take some of that money back. And the result is that uh, in, it's much, much, much more expensive to buy a house if you're a buyer. And so housing prices have started to come down a little bit. It's still, there's still a giant affordability crisis, but there's no, the bubble itself in housing has sort of declined a little bit. Okay. And maybe we can just quickly talk about crypto, because I feel like this is a sort of emperor's new clothes moment where the whole thing is right. being exposed as something that's not as innovative as people thought it would be. And yeah, maybe just lay out what SBF and FDX is. I mean, it's a crypto exchange, but like, why is this scam and like all the frauds that SBF was engaging in with his other company, Alameda, like, why is this such a big deal? And what will this lead to? Well, so so let's just start with crypto, because I think people like to look at Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and think that it's some sort of isolated incident. And a lot of people in crypto are like, oh, that's not us. Like, that's just the, the bad guy of crypto. Like, we got to start with the premise. Crypto is bullshit. Like, it's just a series of get rich quick schemes and, and fraud and money laundering. It's not a technologically innovative thing. All right. All you know, people hear about this thing called the blockchain. The blockchain is just basically a different way to have a spreadsheet. That's all it is. It's like an Excel spreadsheet, except done in a slightly different way. And all a cryptocurrency is, is one of these spreadsheets. Like, and you call it and you put markings in it and you call it, you know, whatever you want to call it, Ethereum or um, Solana. And you just say, all right, you have five Solana according to this spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet is called Solana. And I have three Solana and I'm going to trade with you. It's like just it's got some attributes of private money, but that's all it is. It's just markings in a spreadsheet. It's valuable insofar as people are willing to buy it. Like if you if you and I both think Solana has value, then I guess it has some value temporarily. It's very much like uh, in the 1920s, there was a Florida real estate bubble and people in New York were trading lots of land. Florida lots of land. And as it turns out, some of these lots of land didn't exist. Like they were in cities that didn't exist. And so does that mean that those lots of land have no value? Well, in a sense, yes. But also as people are trading them, like they're worth what people are paying, even though it's bullshit. This is a term called the bezel that John Kenneth Galbraith coined, which is like fraudulent stuff has value as long as the bubble keeps going. But once the bubble pops, it no longer has value. That's the, that's what crypto is. Um, crypto has no use cases except gambling, money laundering, fraud. Um, and, you know, you can frame money laundering 
in a nice way if you want. You can say this lets us move money outside the purview of the authoritarian regimes, or this gives us financial privacy, but it's just money laundering. Um, so of course it attracts criminals and FTX and Sam Bankman Freed are just criminals that were stealing their customers' money and using sham transactions to disguise the fact that they were stealing from people who are mostly engaged in like an attempt to take advantage of get rich quick schemes. So it's kind of hard to be like super sympathetic to the people that whose money they stole. But that's what was going on. There are a whole series of interlinked institutions that are just as fraudulent as FTX, some of which went, you know, collapsed. Some Ponzi schemes collapsed six months ago, three months ago, you know, a month ago. More of them are going to collapse in a month or two or three. But it's all going to collapse because there's no point. It's high finance without purpose. And it's not, you know, and so, of course, it was like, it's just full of criminals and money launderers and Sam Bankman-Fried is just one more. Right. But I mean, some people would say that we could potentially regulate it as a security by the SEC, the Security um, Exchange Committee, or else as a commodity by the CFTC. And I don't know, I mean, in Europe, for example, the ECB's, uh, one of the, the board members at the ECB, uh, Fabio Panetta yesterday was just saying that like, we need to regulate crypto internationally, but also get rid of energy intensive crypto. And so they seem to be like the, the Europeans seem to be very focused on regulating. Um, but I think your opinion is that we should just let it crash and burn, right? Yeah, I mean, look, look you can, there's this annoying coded language, right? Where people say, oh, we need to regulate crypto and you can regulate crypto by, you know, allowing people to gamble and do stupid things. Or you can regulate crypto by saying you have to have disclosure regimes and consumer protections and effectively make it not economical to have. Right. So I like that's that's what the Securities and Exchange Commission wants to do is regulate crypto. And if you regulated crypto and make them like basically like what a what a coin is, is, is essentially it's like a it's like a stock only if there's no point. Imagine if you owned like a share of IBM, but there was no business there. Like there's no business behind it. That's what it is. And if you actually have to, you know, if you have to disclose things and have some consumer protection like rules in place, then it's not worth it to have that like gambling instrument. It's costly and there's no point behind it. So I think that's the way to regulate it and get rid of it. Um, I'll say that like European regulators are generally weak and more like they're weak and they're losers. And I mean, my experience with the U.S. is that like the regulatory scheme, sometimes you have people that are doing really useful things like Gary Gensler was doing really useful things and uh, at the SEC and, you're, you know, but it's like it's pretty corrupt. But we're like sort of upfront about how corrupt it is. In Europe, it's just a bunch of loser technocrats that like are always pretending they're trying to do something, but they aren't because Europe is fundamentally, the EU is fundamentally a dysfunctional structure that can't actually do anything. Um, well, it, it and, lacks democratic channels. And one of the issues is that because it's a supranational entity, it has, you know, it represents so many nation states and it's difficult to harmonize in certain areas. But I. Yeah, you need I consensus among, you, you need consensus among 27 states and then the bureaucrats who like live in brussels all kind of secretly have contempt for democracy and 
and are all really passive aggressive and don't actually like to do anything, which is why they've had press releases for 10 years about how they're cracking down on Google. And Google seemed pretty powerful to me. <laughs> I mean, we're just sort of, and in the US, we're just like, yeah, everyone's paid off by Google. And in Europe, they're like, we've been cracking down. And they, I mean, do you want the passive aggressive version or not? I'm personally, I don't like the passive aggressive version, but that's yeah, like, it's like this weird thing of trying to get consensus without actually really doing anything and having different sort of regulatory frameworks. But I do agree that there's this tendency to just valorize like technocratic thinking and to just trust the elites without actually questioning what they're doing and to have some sort of democratic accountability for what they're doing. We saw this like with the Greek bailouts, right? Yeah, that was, that was a fucking disaster. And like, you know, the other thing is they love to whine about the U.S. And it's like the U.S., you know. Well, I love to whine like, about the U.S. too, but for different reasons. Yeah, but they hate the U.S. for the wrong reasons, right? Like there are a lot of criticisms of America that make a lot of sense. But like the Europeans, the European bureaucrats like dislike the U.S. Like they whine about the U.S. for, for the wrong reasons. Like they basically are mad at the U.S. for giving them free defense and um, access to American markets. And they're just upset because they don't want to do anything and they want someone to blame. It's very much like they have this like childlike frustration with their parents and they look at the U.S. as their parents and they don't want to admit that they don't actually spend any money on defense or have the ability to do anything geopolitically. Yeah, they're barely meeting their 2% commitments to NATO and yet they want, you know, the U.S. to bankroll them and to basically give them all the weapons that they need. Right. I but, mean, it, that, that, that's right. And then they, and, and the, you know, the U S just had a passed a bill to like manufacture electric vehicles here. And then the Euro Europe is like, this is going to, you know, this is discriminating against European companies and it's really protectionist and how dare you. And we're the bulwark of free trade. And it's like, that's just total bullshit. Like Europe is super protectionist. They have, you know, to export a car from the U.S. to Europe, it's a 10% tariff. To export a car from Europe to the U.S., it's 2.5% tariff. I mean, I don't, I'm not a free trader. I don't care. I'm just sort well, of like, build your own shit, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, wasn't that also like a remnant of the whole Washington consensus, you know, this push for deregulation and for privatization? And it's like, okay, we're going to have... Uh, we're going to ensure that in other countries that maybe are less powerful in, in the global south, that they won't be able to implement like their own protectionist frameworks or um, to enforce subsidies because like the EU doesn't want that and the US doesn't want that. And if you look at the EU, they have like some of the largest subsidies when it comes to agriculture and, and other areas. So it, it is hugely hypocritical that you know certain countries are expected to not have protectionist measures and then other countries can go ahead and, and yeah, do this. I, so like, I agree with that. I mean, you also look at like the U.S. Um, with the with the vaccines, the U.S. Uh, actually for the first time said, oh, we should share the IP with the rest of the world. And it was like, where were the bad guys being like, no, we got to do what pharma wants. It was Germany. Like Germany was the lead in trying to block that and successfully blocked the ability. I mean, you know, there are well, reasons to Bill question. Gates also didn't want some of well, yeah but the u.s i mean but the bill gates doesn't get a vote right formally right. Anyway. um and like the so the, right, the but, u.s i mean was... he was supporting Kovacs, and Kovacs had a very specific 
mandate and intention to basically just give money to other countries, but to not share the technology with them for them to develop that, that, their own vaccines. That's right. That's right. Um, I, uh, yeah, no. And, and I think that that's, that's correct that like the general European approach, um, and I think a U.S. approach, like the neoliberal approach in the U.S. in the 1990s was like really destructive and was basically saying to to like smaller countries and weaker countries, like do what we want and we're going to do what we want. And, you know, fuck you. That was sort of the attitude. And it was really destructive. The U.S. is moving away from that framework. It's like still, you know, it's in transition. It's not we're not like but Europe is kind of the last holdout. And um, the last new you know, I think you can see that. What? The last neoliberals. The, like they the, just the don't final, want to give yeah. up. It's, I mean, it is ironic being here sometimes because they do have this contempt for the U.S. and they really support these transatlantic relationships, but they seem to focus on the wrong thing. So, for example, when uh, when Joe Biden came to power, they're like, oh, now we have this amazing transatlantic relationship again. And they didn't seem to identify how Trump wasn't really an anomaly, like just because he was, you know, not super supportive of those relationships he wasn't like this anomaly the only bad guy i mean there are certain trends in, in american hegemony that you know was taking place prior to that and they seem to fixate on just the wrong things and like amplify it so it is kind yeah of they're like obsessed with manners right That's right what right it was. it's like they're, who cares they're... that like we have like a better transatlantic relationship now like what does that even mean and you can go back to to other U.S. administrations and look at like what. Well, I mean, I think I think you can see like it's most obvious when it comes to China, right? Where like the Germans, are, <laughs> the Germans are like, you know, they're they're basically cool with fascism. They're cool with fascism again, which happens in Germany, right? It's just that it's you know it's like Chinese fascism is totally fine to to like the German auto industry, like they're a okay with that, and it's like basically German politics is don't disrupt an older German man's like pleasant vacation. If you do that, there are, there are, there are, they will murder an endless number of people to make sure that their vacation is pleasant. Um, and that was whole, that was Angela Merkel's like policy framework. And it's, it's, it's like sociopathic. And so the Germans have been engaged. Like they've, they got cheap stuff from China, cheap gas from, from Russia and free defense from the U S and they're just a giant free rider. And they just crushed Greece they basically crushed Greece so that Greece could pay back uh, German and French banks for like all the easy money that yeah. they received. And they framed it as like this this crisis of of like you know a sovereign debt crisis when it was the lazy the lazy Greeks right yeah those the lazy, lazy Greeks. Greeks it was essentially like there was like a weird racist component too that was like hilarious um, yeah and Wolfgang Schäuble who was like the finance minister at the time he was just such a freak and he like he just really got off on demonizing the Greeks it was like the weirdest thing to witness at the time yeah I went over to Germany at a certain point and I think I got into a shouting match with like the mayor of some town over it I was like you're fucking over the Greeks you're not he was like the German foreign policy is to be seen as the nice country and I'm like you're not nice like you're fucking over the Greeks he's like oh that's more complicated and they, I always get into shouting matches with Germany and always get to the point where I'm like, you know, you were the Nazis. You're not the Nazis anymore, but you don't get credit. You don't get credit for not being Nazis anymore. Like they want credit for like, well, we know how to deal with Nazis. It's like, no, you don't. No, no, no. And there's a huge problem in Germany now because 
a lot of times they tend to conflate, um, you know, critique of the Israeli government and like anti-Zionism as being anti-Semitic, which is obviously not the case. And they don't seem to realize that they're funding, you know, the like certain military companies that are involved. Well, in that's the whole, I mean, the whole Israel thing is like, it's a, it's a whole, you know, that, that the politics there are kind of hilarious. Um, you know, there. I don't want to get into Israel too much, but like the one of the most successful anti-monopoly movements in the world was in Israel in 2011, which is its own kind of interesting thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, and it would be great to have you on again. And thanks a lot, Matt. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye.